And I'm not a really good American because I like to form my own opinions. Huh? What? There's tons of examples of corporate greed, inequality, and disregard for the environment that make people wonder if markets are evil. And they are. Maybe Lisa's right about America being the land of opportunity, and maybe a deal has a point about the machinery of capitalism being oiled with the blood of the workers. Where it's like, hey, wake up, liberals. You can't always do, uh, sometimes you gotta, uh, you know, uh, but that's a, that's that's actual quote from Karl Marx. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. Um... If I were to ever start a country with a communist government, wink, wink, with 12 years. Men are seduced by communists, women so much so that they deem communism nice. Communists murdered mostly the Nazis. Bottom-up horizontal connection, sharing at all levels is key. Describing is anarchy. Are you an anarchist? I mean, am I a member? An anarchist group, yes. Anarchists have a group? I believe so, sure. What kind of garbage is that? Oops, my anarchy symbol. Welcome, welcome to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Daniel Platt, here in the studio at WCALP in Albany. This is your leftist radical reading hour. Brings you news, issues, but not, not particularly news, but issues, essays, readings from a radical and revolutionary left perspective for the curious or the committed Proposing a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself, not tearing itself apart or continually uh, diverging. The meaning point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. Finding the common ground, we probably wave the flags of the three lefts. So, I'm going to continue from last week, for the most part in the series I call Left-Wing Culture War, which isn't like mainstream culture war between conservative and liberal, or progressive and not, uh, right-wing, left-wing. was left-wing mean in various contexts? It means so many different things, uh, particularly, and that's kind of why I'm discussing those different things. So the topic this time that I'm kind of been always holding off on doing because it's so contentious, so, like, I wasn't even sure, like, what I'm thinking about it half the time. The distinction between identity politics or identitarian, uh, maybe that's more derisively to call it that, politics and strategy based on identity, oppression, organizing the oppressed, uh, class of the oppressed, versus class, economic, um, capitalist versus worker, service versus professional, those kind of dichotomies, right? Unity of Opposites, that was the title of my last episode. Maybe all these things are the same thing. But, of course, there's also all this differentiation. How to make sense of it. Maybe let us attempt. So I have a number of articles going from mainstream down, um, I would say. So the first few will be, and some will hit on recent events or recent examples. I'm not going to be touching the latest iteration of, of Palestine versus Israel violence. This is something that happens every three years. It seems like the international blowback gets a little worse towards Israel each time. Sort of positive. Crowds in support of Palestine get bigger. And my mother gets more uncomfortable. <laughs> anyway. But I don't need to talk about that because there's everyone else talking about that. 
you can know everything you want to know. I want to cover the things or talk about the things that kind of get pushed down because of the this crisis or the, there's always another crisis, always the crisis of the week, the news of the week, things to pay attention to, uh, competing for your attention. Meanwhile, these intellectual or strategy issues don't get addressed. And the longer they don't get addressed, the more things are don't work on the quote-unquote left. And the more we just kind of stay this large collection of leftists that can't agree on what we're doing. Or we're not doing anything as a team or together. Um, we're always kind of centripetally spinning outward. Or getting co-opted by the establishment. And I'm a little more on that. First, a piece from Microsoft News. Don't know why it came to this, but this was a headline that was shared on a certain Facebook page, and it got my attention. The headline is, Anti-Racist Messaging is Failing with Voters, So Why Can't Liberals Quit It? So this isn't about, like, maybe it's equating liberal with leftist, I don't do that. I propose you don't. But sometimes when it comes to identity politics, they that's kind of where they merge together. So then maybe that's my theme of the episode, my contention. You know, you're, you're not really doing leftism, classwork, um, revolution, or liberation if you're still doing identity politics. Really contentious uh, statement to make, I know, um, because it's so popular to do this, especially when you see all the energy around Black Lives Matter, and other such social movements. If you spend any time at all listening to progressive messaging lately, you've probably heard countless invocations of race and racism. Democratic elected officials have taken to framing virtually any policy goal they want through the lens of anti-racism. As I go forward, it will be explained over and over that, or it's acknowledged that identity politics is a tool of the establishment to bludgeon leftists to get in line because so many leftists themselves recognize or have the ideology that identity politics matters very is very important. It's in fact the only way of organizing and acting politically. I think there's a mistake in there. New York Democratic Representative Jamal Bowman, for instance, certainly warned us that standardized testing is a pillar of systemic racism. By the way, since this is a Microsoft mainstream type of news article, it's only talking about Democrats and what they're doing, not leftist movements, not social movements or grassroots on the ground, not any of the groups I talked about last time, referring to anarchists and Leninists and, and, and other Marxists. Those that were so marginal, we're not going to be mentioned in anything, this accepted conversation about Democrats racializing things what the right wing actually complain about. And that will be another thing. The right wing complain about certain things that leftists do, and the usual response is some kind of derision of, ugh, that's so unrealistic. That's not what's happening at all. But the right, in their propaganda, have a certain point. Their point is wrong. Advocates for student debt relief, like the ACLU, want us to know that student debt is a racial justice issue. Climate activists, who historically have talked about their issues in universal terms, have increasingly described their movement through anti-racist language, arguing that it benefits minorities most to battle climate change. This is because maybe minorities are the most politicized kind of groups, 
and also universalizing the problem didn't seem to be effective in their organizing. They wouldn't, it would actually be a way of pushing away minorities, the oppressed, by only talking about things universally. That seems to be the conclusion from those organizers. But somehow this, um, this article uses data to say something the opposite. The logic behind this ra racialization of every debate is fairly straightforward. America is an increasingly diverse place and one where increasing numbers of people care de deeply about racism and equal opportunity. Yeah. Uh, so why not frame every issue through the lens of racial justice? What can be the harm of in talking about how every universal policy especially benefits African-Americans and Latinos? That is the question that Yale University researchers Josh Kala and Mika English recently explored in a working paper that tested various types of messaging to promote progressive policies. So, phone surveys, I suppose. Political scientists have really, quoting them, have really been doing this type of research for decades, and they've always shown that associating these policies with racial minorities makes people less likely to support them. You know, an argument that America be racist. But given the shift in racial attitudes in the past few years, we thought that maybe the story would be different this time around. English and Kala took six different policies, increasing the minimum wage to 15 an hour, forgiving 50,000 in student debt, uh, loan debt, that's like 50,000 per individual. Uh, so let's say if you have 70,000, you'll still have 20. The Green New Deal, Medicare for all, upzoning housing, meaning increasing uh, density, uh, and decriminalizing marijuana and erasing prior convictions for it, and then ask people if they supported them. But they framed the issues differently to see which rationale was most compelling. To one group, they explicitly emphasized that the policy would benefit a specific racial group or promote racial equity. To another, they spoke about how a policy would promote economic justice or benefit a specific class group using the class frame. For a third group, they used both the race and class frame together, and for a final group, they used a neutral framing that explained the policy, but made no mention of either. What they found is that the class frame was generally more effective than either the race uh, or the race plus class framing. Quoting them, despite observed increases in support for racial justice and democratic elites, use of race and class plus race framing in their public messaging, we find no evidence that Americans are persuaded by those policy frames. They conclude. After the summer, everyone wanted to believe that you know we have this great awakening that everyone now is aware of racial equity that we need to fix. But we think our results suggest kind of the opposite. Part of the reason for this is likely because many voters don't want to, and again, voters, which is a very specific minority of Americans. There's so many who don't vote, don't identify as being a voter, and maybe cannot be put in the classification of voter. So that's something important to put in mind here. But they don't want to support policies that they perceive as benefiting some group other than themselves. As I reported in 2019, now of course it's always been also a similar line of thought in progressive spaces, that we do need to universalize our policies and not just talk about them benefiting a particular group of people. And yet, there's also the opposite trend of centering uh, the oppressed, the marginalized, the non-white. If white people stereotype African Americans as poor, they will be more likely to oppose welfare spending because they will see it as benefiting 
African Americans over themselves. In other words, it helps to tell voters what's in it for them if you want them to support any particular policy. Seems intuitive enough. But that's not the whole story here, of course. It wasn't just that some white voters were turned off by race-oriented messaging. For African Americans, and here's where it gets a little spicy, or, or rather it's not just a, yeah, same old, same old, white people be racist. For African Americans, the only minority group surveyed in high enough numbers to draw a conclusion, the race frame seemed to have no advantage over a class one. Something really important that we found is that the race appeal and the class appeal are just about as effective for black voters. This is from uh, the researcher English. Speculating that these voters tend to be more pragmatic in their political approach. So maybe there's a maybe there's a separation to be made between political approaches and strategies versus uh, social ones, getting clout, popularity, attention. You know, attention economy is not politics, no matter how much it's framed. Interestingly, English and Kala did find one group that was specifically receptive to race framing would be white Democrats. Hmm. It's worth wondering why progressives, particularly white ones, have become so fixated on racial messaging. Well, I can answer that. It's because they're not interested in economic uh, policy at all. Not at all. They'll make up every excuse imaginable to not do economic policy like uh, debt forgiveness or raising wages. Maybe they'll say, oh, I support unionization. They'll never help. They'll say, good luck with that. I hear it all the time when I'm canvassing. I just canvassed on Friday, so I have a more fresh experience. Otherwise, I'm talking about like years ago, because I haven't canvassed in a long time. But I did so this week, and uh, it, the memories flood back of like all the different types of interactions you have. Political parties spend mountains of money on survey and focus group work. English and College paper may be the latest showing how ineffective racial messaging can be, but it certainly isn't the first bit of research to demonstrate that. My guess is that the progressive movement is simply captured by an upper-class elite, for whom anti-racism is now an all-dominating philosophy. Sure, it may not persuade your average voter, white or black, or anyone else, to support your party, although, thanks to the rigging of the oligarchy, there really are only just the two parties. So, when they say which, you know, the one of two political parties. But it probably doesn't impress your social cohort. There's a reason elite prep schools are now embracing critical race theory, while most working-class communities and public schools would find some of its tenets soteric and unrelatable. And what this latest study shows is that this elite cohort that runs everything from the major news media, which is basically <laughs> mask off, yeah, it's an oligarchy. We have a minority who run everything. Not only with, which is just kind of more of a normal, like, um, reactionary, uh, the reaction to that is a populism, but there's so many different types of populisms, and populism is very much incomplete without the analysis of, of lenses of race and class. You have to put more on it, because otherwise populism just kind of turns into a, there's a shady group on top, it must be Jews. That's who it usually turns into. Or it's them, they, they. There was a time when progressives were not so enthralled by the whims of one social class. They aspired to talk like ordinary people and persuade, I mean, of course, that's just PR still. But take, for instance, civil rights leader Jesse Jackson. Having grown up poor and cut his teeth in the civil rights movement, Jackson has always thought hard about building diverse coalitions, persuading large number of people possible, as large a number of people possible to support 
his positions. Messaging he used during the 88 bid for Democratic nomination sits with me. This is to the uh, political scientist, I suppose. Quoting him, Most poor people are not lazy. They are not black. They are not brown. They are mostly white and female and young, he said during a speech at the DNC that year. But whether white, black, or brown, a hungry baby belly turned inside out is the same color. Color it pain, color it hurt, color it agony. So rather than argue for the interests of one racial group or another, Jackson was preaching solidarity. Which, of course, then leads into, like, this is what Obama did, but still, if you don't actually push that economic, universal economic policy, then you're just fronting. It's all bull. It's that kind of messaging that progressives use to pass their policies. If they think they're passing anything. I guess they're passing some things. Uh, this was filed by Zahijani, a journalist who hails from Atlanta. He has previously worked as a reporter blogger for Think Progress, Progressive Change Campaign Committee, an alternate. So he's been very much part of And his, uh, he's a co-host of the podcast Extremely Offline. Although, I think anyone who has a podcast is mostly half online, half off. So the next um, opinion piece from Newsweek, which is very much uh, just, a, just a segue over, the title of it is BIPOC, which is um, Black Indigenous People of Color, isn't doing what you think it's doing. Opinion piece filed by Andrea Platt and Christopher McDonald Dennis, author of Penning with the People and Chief Diversity Officer of Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. So these are those university elites kind of thing. But more or less, they're also veterans of social movements past. Filed last month. The long list of black people killed in America at the hands of police and vigilantes, culminating in the murder of George Floyd last summer, was forced, has forced this country to truly reckon with issues of racism, police brutality, mass incarceration, and white supremacy, perhaps for the first time in our history. But a piece of this long overdue reckoning has been concerning to us. And this is then becomes an argument over language, not policy or messaging. Although messaging is part of messaging. Because then, I mean, this, these articles right now I'm talking about, like this, this whole culture war on the left, is really about our strategy and messaging, not really what we're after. I want to lay that out. We say this is concerning because this new acronym of BPOC, which stands for Black, Indigenous, and Other, in parentheses, People of Color, where we use to call people of color. To say this is concerning because this new acronym just isn't doing what those using it think it is doing. We don't make this point lightly. We have spent over 30 years having conversations about race and racism as activists and educators living in a society whose bedrock is white supremacy. We are deeply connected to the human rights struggles of the 60s and 70s. We matured and marched through the multicultural 80s and 90s and now watch and reflect on the 21st century's robust intersectionality. All positive things. As such, our lives and professional experiences have made us sensitive to the ever-shifting social justice lingo. And we have come to an understanding that there are concepts that can and should endure, but there are also concepts that are too fragile because they're doing too much. People of color, or POC, is the former. BIPOC is the latter. The advantages of the term POC over BIPOC are numerous. When you start to think about it, the term people of color was a phrase chosen by black, Latino, Native, American, and Asian and Pacific Islander activists in the 90s to actively de-center whiteness. 
As longtime reproductive justice activist Loretta Ross explains it, the phrase came to replace the then popular term non-white or minority. See, I was using it today, and basically I really don't need to. I should just use POC. Which carried from them the idea that we were less than. To say, you're, you know, the white is neutral, and thus we're non-white. But the hope was that bringing to together people from disparate communities under a common term would further cement the coalition that was formed when these marginalized groups came together to wage war against white supremacy. But not capitalism. There's a video in the article, The Origin of the Phrase by Loretta Ross. Watch it for yourself. Links in the podcast episode. People of color is a political idea, explains Ross, not a biological one. And its political import entails bringing racial minorities in solidarity with one another. The substitution of BIPOC just doesn't accomplish the same goal. For starters, it's confusing. We've both seen people claim that BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, while others say it means Black, Indigenous, and people of color, or even Black, Indigenous, people of color. Beyond this confusion, when you insist on naming Black people separately from others, as BIPOC does, you are in effect claiming that Black people aren't people of color, though Black people coined the term. Of course, we understand that the acronym is well-intentioned. It's designed to extract and emphasize particular history and experience of blacks, and particularly enslaved and their descendants, many indigenous nations in the United States also. In drawing out the experience of black and indigenous, the, the term names black and them indigenous impressions as elemental to the founding and the continuation of the racial infrastructure of the U.S. The United States. We also recognize another noble aim of the term that it did seek to solve. It came out of noticing how white and non-black people of color use the term poke, apoc, to obfuscate issues concerning black people, even their own anti-blackness. It sought to reclaim the conversation and recenter it on our experiences. These are both noble goals. And yet, as activists and educators, we think that there is a lot of heavy lifting that the acronym does. For we agree with entrepreneurial connector Walton Smith that it makes him cringe. It makes us cringe. Somebody put in a tweet, which I don't really care. I tweet these episodes, but otherwise that is all I do on Twitter. You can just as easily address the problems by poke aims to solve by being specific when you're talking about a specific group. If you're talking about black folks, just say black folks. But there's another danger to be poke. If Andre Lord Lord, yeah, famously said that there was no hierarchy of oppression. The term BIPOC sets up just such a hierarchy. While we appreciate highlighting the unique experiences of black and indigenous folks, what about the histories and realities of Latinos or Asian Americans? Their experiences are also foundational to particular parts of the country, namely the Southwest and the West Coast. These racial groups played a vital role as the dominant other in the white imagination as well, such as when the U.S. government crafted its first anti-immigration law. Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, or in the violent takeover of Mexican territories of what we know as the American West under the guise of Manifest Destiny. Malevolent stereotypes of both groups, demonizing opium and marijuana in the early 20th century and the beginning of the war on drugs, just as Prohibition ended. Even today, we are seeing huge spikes in anti-Asian hate crimes. The term BIPOC comes across as deeply problematic in that it obscures a group that should be centered at this moment, then. 
So you just kind of stretch it out into almost like like the queer alphabet, LGBTQIAA. Just string it out as B I L A and so on. What is the point of having a umbrella acronym? Because these are common struggles, right? Unfortunately, this is built into the acronym itself. BIPOC sets up an Earth Us versus Them binary. The acronym for Black and Indigenous shifts Asian Pacific Islander Americans and Latinos over there, reinforcing the idea of interracial conflict rather than an interracial solidarity. You cannot allow that to happen. Interracial conflicts between people of color allow the machinery of white supremacy to continue to whirl while we fight each other. I think that statement does some heavy lifting in itself because, the, as they say, the intention is not to divide, but they are pointing out that, well, you're dividing in your words, and that might just affect our actions and our organizing. We all have work to do. Indigenous issues must be included in our national conversation. Anti-blackness must be fed out non-black communities of color. We, as people of color, must do the work within our own communities but not at the expense of our solidarity. And thus, like, say, if I'm going to just organize white nerds, that is what I'm going to have to focus on because they're kind of, quote-unquote, my people. We have the shared experience. And I do struggle with radicalizing them because many of them are professionals. They are cushy, middle-class actors. But they do have left-wing sympathies. And those sympathies are quashed when it comes to esoteric differentiation type strategy language. Like I was just kind of a friend of a friend has uh, left-wing sympathies, but he was definitely turned out by any militant language when it comes to gun ownership. He was okay as long as it was like kind of a self-defense posture. And I even mentioned the history of the civil rights movement being very well armed they didn't go out shooting the Klan because the Klan was usually coming after them to shoot. And they needed the deacons for defense. And MLK needed to carry a gun on him. Because otherwise they would have just been gunned down earlier than they would have than they were. But they were eventually gunned down by the state and other actors, mil- uh, vigilantes, police and Klan. Because then there was a crisis of, do we keep defending ourselves with guns? Or what is the role of gun ownership and this militancy? It makes us look bad. Or now that we've brought liberals into our coalition, they, they don't like this. We want to keep them. So we may need to disarm. Way more complicated than how I'm relating it, because I wasn't there. Do I? Yes. So now I'm going to play a video... I think, I, yeah, I definitely need a break. It's, uh, oh, it's 20 minutes. But half of it is like um, Marxist theory, so maybe I'll try skipping it around. Uh, this is a video from Zero Books. I'm very fond of playing their stuff, but I do like what it does. So I'll, I may skip around the video, so you might hear some clipping. Uh, I suggest you kind of watch it all in full if you're interested in it. But otherwise, I think just the beginning and the end are really kind of important. Oh, yes, and the video is called, Is the Left a Magerial Elite? Which is one of those separations of professional workers 
versus the non-professional. And this conversation is slowly expanding, I believe. I saw it on a Facebook page I'm on. I forget which one now. It's one of the you know leftist discussion pages. And there was a kind of... Someone just came out with a hot take of like, you know, I don't like this term professional. And uh, it, was, it definitely confused a bunch of people because like, well, doesn't professional just mean not being um, a jerk when interacting with people in, at your job? I'm like, well... I guess that is the kind of normy mean, meaning of it. But when it comes to hiring and job and opportunity, it kind of differentiates having like those that have degrees, those who have tritary education and beyond. Those, you know, it, it's a definition, it's a separation between service, those who serve, and those who manage. And management is empowerment sort of autonomy. Hello, Zero Books readers and viewers. It's me again, Douglas Lane, and this video will deliver yet another critique of what is calling itself the post-left. Or if that's too broad a category, then it is a critique of Michael Lind and his idea that a managerial elite is dominating society. Along the way, I'll explain how the history of secularization led to Marx's critique of political economy, why the notion of social class or caste must be considered separately from the idea of class as it relates to capitalist production, and I'll take an excerpt from Ben Burgess's upcoming book, Canceling Comedians as the World Burns, an effort to demonstrate that it's possible to oppose the progressive or left liberal wing of capitalism without becoming a neoconservative with a Marxist ascetic. In a previous video, I explained why the concept of the left was still relevant today, despite the fact that the US left had largely liquidated itself into the Democratic Party. In this video, I wanna argue that a class-based politics based on a Marxist understanding of political economy is still relevant today. And to clarify the difference between the Marxist conception of class and other forms of supposedly class-based politics that confuse older forms of social organization for today's society dominated by capital. The political difference between the old feudal systems of social organization and bourgeois society might best be understood as the difference between autocracy and democracy. Autocratic systems of political authority have the aim of serving the interests of the rulers, whereas democracies aim at serving the interests of a citizenry that is conceived of as consisting of equals. In the Middle Ages, the interests of the rulers were thought to be the legitimate interests of society as a whole, as the purpose of society was not to meet the needs or desires of people on earth, but to meet the demands and needs of divine authority. Within the autocracies of the Middle Ages, the ultimate ruler or sovereign was God up in heaven. Bourgeois society, the world that arrived through a series of breaks from autocratic regimes, brought with it a process of secularization. The old forms of religious authority were dismantled, if only partially. In philosophy courses, the beginning of this period of secularization is often called the age of reason. In a couple of mentor philosophers' books entitled The Age of Reason and The Age of Enlightenment, 
This period is defined by such figures as Galileo, Descartes, Spinoza, John Locke, David Hume, and George Berkeley. But the process of secularization has been long and it's remained incomplete. In the 18th century, a figure like Hume cleared the way for modern secular society by undermining justifications for religious beliefs. He argued against miracles, refuted the cosmological argument for the existence of God, and noted that what originally motivated religious beliefs were man's fears of a cruel world and his ignorance of the ultimate cause of his misery. By the 19th and 20th centuries, those who were struggling against religion attempted to point out the more hidden causes of religious belief. The title of my first lecture is The Masters of Suspicion. The three great masters of suspicion of the 19th century. And it's not merely their intellectual work that began to make us feel estranged and alienated and separated from the holy world of previous times, the world in which we could find our meaning in God. At first, you will notice only the negative part. In other words, the destructive part of the criticisms. As long as we could believe with Descartes that if we knew something clearly and distinctly, we knew it, we were okay. But then when the suspicion crept in from the direction of Freud that we could know something, but it would really be a forbidden piece of our sexual history prohibited and thus channeled in another direction that was bobbling out of our little lips. I think any one of these theories can be taken too far. But it's clearly the case that the field of the unconscious undercuts religion in a very important way, gives a very profound explanation of it. Uh, in the case of, uh, of Marx, what's being masked is economic interest. In the Mentor Philosophers series, these masters of suspicion are examined in a book entitled The Age of Ideology. And that book begins with Kant, because the difference between the ages, between the age of reason and the age of ideology, can be found by examining the difference between two Copernican revolutions. The Copernican revolution that Galileo championed shifted our understanding of the outside universe. Whereas in the late 18th century, Kant's version of the Copernican Revolution shifted our understanding of our own minds. Rather than our understanding, our perceptions being shaped by objects outside of us, the world as it appears is shaped by our, our mental character. Kant produced a critique of pure reason, a critique of the idea that there was an objective rationality that was common to all rational animals. As Henry Aiken put it in The Age of Ideology, from the time of Kant on, the assumption of a preordained correspondence between the mind and its object was regarded as dogmatic and uncritical. The reason in things is the same as a reason which we acknowledge as a standard of valid thinking about any object. This is only because we ourselves have preordained what conditions any object must meet if it is to be counted by us as real. By the middle of the 19th century, our own participation in the construction of reality had taken yet another turn, a turn back to objectivity that was nonetheless not a reversion or a simple reversal. So when Aiken describes Marx, he starts with a familiar quote, 
Philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world. The point is to change it. If we take a post-Kantian view, then we can see that what Marx is saying is that philosophers, including Kant, Hegel, and their followers, have only tried to interpret and explain the subjective categories of understanding that are necessary for the world as it is to appear. But the point is to change the conditions that create those categories and to change the world that springs from them. For Marx, this required more than finding the right ideas, the correct presuppositions that would create a better world. And it required much more than merely abandoning long-standing dogmas and religious notions. He wanted to change the material conditions that created society. In the German ideology, Marx makes it clear that critiquing the ideas of society, abandoning dogmas, will not be sufficient. He compares the young Hegelian critics of ideology to a valiant fellow who had the idea that men were drowned in water only because they were possessed with the idea of gravity, and who believed that if they were to knock this notion of gravity out of their heads, say by stating it to be a superstition, a religious concept, they would be sublimely protected against any danger from water. For Marx, what presents itself as an ideology or as a religious conception of reality is in fact a justification for a real material relation. The world, while not separate from our conceptions, was nonetheless objective. In fact, it was only because our objective relation to the world had already been established that any conception of the world, and therefore any appearance of it, could arrive. Engels explained Marx's perspective this way. Marx discovered the law of the development of human history. The simple fact, hitherto concealed by an overgrowth of ideology, that mankind must first of all eat, drink, have shelter and clothing, before it can pursue politics, science, art, religion, etc. What's more, Marx argued that because of the way our productive relations had changed, that is, the way we provide ourselves with drink, food, shelter, and clothing, it had changed. We now have a clearer conception of the truth of both the objective world and our relationship to it. While the feudal period may have been justified in terms of serving the needs of a divine order, it too had in fact had worldly aims, namely, the social reproduction of its own material needs. However, it was only after bourgeois society took hold, after the creation of a legally free laboring class, that the material reality, the class basis of all societies was laid bare. Now, all of this explanation is leading up to this. The difference between an understanding of society based on caste or social class and a Marxist understanding of society is this difference between what Marx called the German ideology, or idealism, and materialism. In his book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, Ben Burgess wrote, There is a cluster of left pathologies that includes everything from the revival of tanky attitudes to hysteria about minor political differences within the left to the bad habit of framing disparities between different groups, primarily in terms of introspective psychodrama about unearned privilege. 
as if the absence of oppression were something that had to be earned. There are good arguments against all of these things in principle, but what I'm most concerned to show in what follows is that they're all symptoms of the failure of the contemporary left to think strategically instead of turning politics into a moral performance. Burgess rejects turning politics into a moral performance because he believes that the struggle for political change cannot be reduced to a question of moral authority, but rather that power resides elsewhere. In the way labor is organized, for instance, in the way goods are distributed, and then in the institutions of power and authority that try to manage the chaos of capitalist society. The assumptions of those who point to social class distinctions or caste distinctions in an effort to explain political or economic reality is different. They assume that power rests precisely upon moral performance. They believe that the power of one or another sovereign authority imposes norms and standards that ultimately shape reality. Marx, on the other hand, points out that the working class, a propertyless class, with little to no social authority, ultimately creates both the real wealth and the abstract value that dictates the terms of society, including the superstructural norms and values that appear in a fractured and multifaceted way in society. Today, most everyone behaves as a young Hegelian or as a German ideologist. That is, most everyone has reverted to this idealist posture Cancel culture warriors who want to stamp out every bad thought expressed online. Neo-populists who want to fight neo-Marxism and defend Western civilization. And everyone in between seems to believe that what rules society are not the material and social relations around production, but political ideologies, moral power, and the fragmented grifts and rackets that pop up here and there online. The primary concern of most everyone is the distribution of power and wealth as if the stuff of the world is presumed to exist on its own and from the start. Now, let's finally consider the arguments that have emerged or re-emerged around the notion of a managerial class. This PMC thesis can be traced back to World War II, specifically to James Burnham's book, The Managerial Revolution. Managerialism, as explained by James Burnham, hinges on the belief that capitalism and the rule of a managing elite are fundamentally at odds with each other. That is, that capitalism could be replaced by competent managers. Burnham assumes that capitalist production is aimed at creating wealth rather than value based on abstract labor time. Following this, he assumes that capitalism relies on a free market and will cease if the market is distorted by the power of the state. Likewise, Burnham argued that capitalism relies on a functional and confident entrepreneurial bourgeois ideology of competition. But as Marx explains in Capital, capitalism is in fact the self-contradiction of bourgeois society. But another way, bourgeois society is defined by the way it constantly undermines and distorts itself. It is always possible for people holding with the wrong theories to make true or true enough observations. For example, in a recent essay by Malcolm Kien, Entitled Against the Managers, he notices that calls to replace cops with social workers is a good example of the managerial mindset of progressive liberals. However, what the right-wingers 
following after Burnham, people like Malcolm, can't grasp is such progressive policies create unintended consequences as they rely on the always contradictory process of capitalist production. Burnham, Malcolm, and even leftists like Marcuse might imagine that the managerial elite creates a controlled society filled with sheep who are lulled into sleep by liberal pieties, religious dogmas, or consumerism. But regardless of the policies of the managers, regardless of what policies they enact, another crisis, another uprising, is always just around the corner. The so-called Marxists who are pushing Lin's notion that there is a new class war are not Marxists. They are not talking about class, and they are not to be trusted by socialists who still long to develop a politics of emancipation. Uh, you're much more likely to get a diploma if one or both of your parents had diplomas, which are kind of the new degrees of uh, uh, nobility. So let's move on to a much more esoteric point of view, a way sort of connected, because that video was about like critiquing the post-left. And to, to explain that, like, so post-left means we don't need leftism anymore. Like, these are the people who actually, like, leftism is part of a politics and a culture of the 20th century, focusing on class and defining certain types of workers and, and these castes and these... But really, there is no class. There are just these castes of, like, people. So you got to get the dichotomy of worker versus professional, and that's what we should focus on or something. This is from a blog called The Queer Bolshevik. So this is a Marxist-Leninist talking about, uh, but it's also a queer one. And I'm definitely a proponent of using the word, in the same way that poke, people of color, is an umbrella term that covers many, many things, or has the potential of covering all these different types of categories. So that you can actually refer to a lot of different people with one word. I prefer using queer instead of the LGBTQIAA plus community because you have all this differentiation and then there's differentiation of class and or caste even within say the G gay or lesbian you know there 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 are gay men men that are white versus the gay men that are black I mean the point of that community was that they all had the same struggle but then it became clear that they actually don't have the same struggle as gay white men can be Republicans and rich and get good jobs, or they come out later of a closet uh, and retain many of the same privileges. But it did hurt them in some ways, but not in the same way. And that's where intersectionality comes in to kind of address those. Using the word queer or people of color solves some of those rhetorical issues. Maybe. So this is a blog post. It's a short one, actually. And it's just on the specific that there are either Marxists, materialists, leftists, that basically turf leftists. And I've, on the previous episode of Left-Wing Culture War, I played a video about, um, or it wasn't Left-Wing Culture War, but it was, it was my clip show of, like, we don't want turfs and swerfs in leftist spaces. Don't want them, and here's why. And I completely agree with it. But why do they exist? Why are there these leftists that are anti-trans, transphobic, homophobic even? Um, they say these things are anti-materialist. That, well, we're just following the science. 
or being good Marxists, leftists, we have materialist analysis based on class or how things are actually organized. And transness doesn't really seem to fit in for them. But the queer Bolshevik has a response. It's called, is trans ideology anti-materialist? Because you might hear that phrase in right-wing propaganda or media. Uh, trans ideology in our schools. Trans ideology. So here's a response from that. From those conservative leftists, conservative um, anyone. No, it is not anti-materialist. This is a response to the various reactionary elements within our global communist movement. Referring to um, a figure named Caleb, Caleb Malpin, CB, CPB, that's the Communist Party of Britain. This is a Brit writing this. And a man in Canada named Jason Uru. I don't suggest you look him up. Who propagate reactionary bourgeois lies about trans people like myself. I am going to assume for the duration of this response that these people are arguing from a place of sincerity. That is, that they are generally seeking truth, and it is only by mistake that they are perpetuating liberal bourgeois lies. I frankly do not believe this. I think many of these people, perhaps all of them, are knowingly lying and remaining willfully ignorant because they are bigots. But for the sake of presenting a well-constructed argument, you steel man. I'm going to treat these ideas as though they come from people who are actually trying to be principled communists. So this is a debate within communists, <laughs> between communists. All right, so I'm going way, way left field from, from the conversation or um, Democrats and social Democrats actually occurs in Congress sometimes, and then there's this. But I feel they're connected very much. So in fact, you learn something about the bigger conversation, the more mainstream one, by looking at this, by what the, the marginalized are dis discussing. I'm going to treat these ideas as though they come from people who are really trying to be principled communists. And I will therefore tackle these ideas in such a way as to prove that they are not principled communist ideas. So what is the argument that these communists make? In short, it is this. Because trans people and our allies conceive of gender as a psychosocial phenomenon rather than a purely physical one that they misconstrue as metaphysics, we are denying material reality and therefore not materialist. They consider, you know, and by materialist uh, in your mind, you can replace that with like science. They're like being anti-science. Uh, they consider our view unmaterialist in two ways. First, they say that in discussing psychosocial gender, you know, I feel like a man, I feel like a woman, instead of physical sex, we are denying material reality. Secondly, uh, they say that in constructing our concept of gender as both as more than purely physical, we are being being idealists, which is almost like an insult uh, in leftist circles. Both of these attacks on trans identity are built on fundamental misunderstandings of facts. So first, they demonstrate they don't understand the concepts of sex and gender, and then second, even more embarrassingly, they demonstrate a misunderstanding of materialism itself. With regards to the first, these so-called communists are utterly in denial about the basic Marxist principle that one must scientifically study a subject for speaking on it. Quoting Mao, no investigation, no right to speak. They have made some, they have made no study of sex and gender as scientific topics and cannot even distinguish the two from each other. Sex, the physical characteristics of the body, exist. No trans person ever denies this. 
We have often said that sex is more complicated than the rigid binary espoused by reactionary pseudoscience. But we will continue to say this because it is the truth. But we absolutely acknowledge physical sex as a phenomenon and do not in any way deny it. Psychosocial gender is, however, an equally real phenomenon and is equally deserving of our attention. By psychosocial, it's like when, when, it's, when something is referred to as a social construct. If sex is a physical sex characteristic of the human body, then gender is the social role one participates within society. The two are connected, but distinct. As such, our discussing one rather very much does not mean we ignore the other. In fact, we discuss both. Rather, it is these transphobic uh, leftists who are ignorant. They're, they ignore psychosocial gender and refuse to acknowledge its existence as separate from being sexual. Ah, but they will respond to this with their second attack, that by acknowledging or considering a ph phenomenon, i.e. gender, which is not purely physical, we are supposedly being idealists and denying and defying it, materialism or science. And this is where the transphobic pseudo-commies truly embarrass themselves, because anyone who makes this argument in sincerity is showing themselves to not remotely understand Marxist materialism. So as anyone knows who, does, who knows anything about this, it teaches us uh, that conflicts of material contradiction are what drive human progress and all other natural phenomena, but also acknowledges that non-material things can arise from these conditions, from these dialectics, conversations, back and forths. The philosophy we hold tells us that everything in society arises from the material reality of this conflict, say between ruling and working classes, but not that things outside of that material can't exist as a consequence or product of it. Indeed, Marxist philosophy has long acknowledged non-material products. So this is also kind of an argument that, you know, Marxist analysis is an inter, uh, it's, it's very much intersectional and is very much, if anything, intersectionality is, of course, a Marxist tradition. So it's accurate to call it a neo-Marxism. Um, who are these neo-Marxists? You know, but liberal scholars who talk of, you know, centering black people, that's kind of less so because it's, it's then sleeving out everything else. If these Marxists say materialist philosophy cannot acknowledge non-physical things, how do they explain um, Marxist theories of base and superstructure or Gramsci's work on cultural hegemony? No, refusing to acknowledge non-physical psychosocial phenomenon is not, you know, social constructs, is not a characteristic of Marxist materialism. Countless other arguments these frauds and bigots have made against us all crumble similarly on inspection. I focus on the false accusation of anti-materialism because it is one that I have not yet seen a Marxist-Leninist response to, but there are others which may be easily refuted. For example, we are plotting the sneak in the bathroom so we may commit sex crimes. No, there is no record of this ever occurring beyond perhaps a few isolated incidents. The data backs that up. We are dividing the working class with our incendiary rhetoric. Well, perhaps we are, but communists have never been opposed to the division of working classes. Surely we have always divided proles between those that are revolutionary and those are not, and stated that the latter must be educated to the point of becoming the former. Education to radicalize. Teach people their history, and it gives them a new perspective. It is just the same with the trans-accepting and the transphobic. Are we somehow undermining feminism by adding our existence to be respected? 
Don't be absurd. Feminists have always striven for the breaking down of rigid gender divides, and we are doing the same. Thus, allies. It is necessary, is it necessary for communists to be transphobic simply because of past ones were? <laughs> no. Marxism is a scientific approach. That means it evolves over time. So today's transphobia must, is unscientific and must be abandoned. So we can refute these idiotic talking points all day, but there is the point. Transphobia is an old ideology which must be crushed. <laughs> That's the language he uses. Oh, they use. All arguments for it are at best misinformed and at worst make out or made up malice instead of genuine thought. The only communist position today is to support the trans proletariat, <laughs> meaning um, the marginalized trans folk um, who are usually service workers. But hey, uh, some, some uh, trans women or uh, trans men, they, uh, maybe they're business owners, maybe they're landlords, <laughs> or they, they're not proles anymore, are they part of the struggle? Um, they have, they seem to have overcome their, uh, oppression. You know, it's like, well, if one person of a identity overcomes oppression, then I guess that means the oppression isn't there. So I'll, on the other side of the hour, I will talk more about progressive stack and its issues. Well, and how, and how, and how it, uh, is a good conversation starter when it comes to talking about these difficult issues and how to resolve them and what is really going on. Um, I kind of like that Zero Books video because it does kind of discuss, like, this is all post-left. That even though, like, the radicalism is back, it's still not leftism. It's still not a team, a left, a movement that is anti-establishment. Even if it really puts itself as oppositional, it's oppositional in tact, well, not tactics, in the, in the in policy, you know. We want to address police brutality, but it isn't oppositional to the system. It's a system, man. And that's kind of where I see the divergence. Um, uh, going to the middle break. Um, before that, let me just give the call sign. You're listening to WCAALP in Albany, New York. I have a voice in Albany. What's going on? Could this be my understanding? It's not your fault. I was being too demanding. I must admit, it's my pride that made me distant. All because I hope that you'd be someone different. There's not much I know about you.
What's up, people? Um, today, I want to talk to you about this idea of the quote-unquote progressive stack, which is a kind of obscure lefty activist practice that has recently gotten a lot of attention in more mainstream circles uh, because of this university lecturer who has been using it in the classroom. So I've seen a lot of people who I think are just genuinely baffled as to what the progressive stack even is. And then that filters into a lot of confusion in sort of the, the debates around it. So the first purpose of this video is simply to explain uh, what the progressive stack is. And, you know, someone actually with personal experience using it uh, in activist settings. The second purpose is to just share my thoughts about what I think is the most reasonable way of uh, thinking about the importation of this practice into the university classroom. 
to foreshadow, I think it's totally asinine and completely indefensible in a university classroom. However, I actually do think that it makes some sense and is rather defensible in social movement settings. Okay, so I'll explain why kind of point by point. Uh, but first, just what is progressive stack? Progressive stack refers to the practice of collecting the list of names of people who are interested in uh, speaking or contributing uh, to a collective deliberation and collecting those names on paper and then sort of rearranging, rearranging them or, or ordering them in a way that uh, reflects a progressive intention, let's say, putting historically marginalized groups closer to the front and more historically dominant groups more towards the end. And there are different ways that it's implemented. Uh, it's usually a kind of informal thing where the, the person who is taking stack, we call it, has to kind of use their judgment to sort of estimate whether a particular person uh, kind of belongs to an, a, a more dominant group or a less dominant group. So the idea or the, the rationale behind it is that, and, and I think it's quite reasonable in a limited sense, is that some people are far more likely to be confident speaking uh, than others. Um, and anyone who's been in a kind of mass movement uh, situation, such as something like Occupy Wall Street, um, you do learn quite quickly, in fact, that um, whenever you have a collective liberation, you know, the there is going to be like a relatively small number of young white men, for instance, who just got out of university um, and are very confident, very comfortable speaking, have lots of ideas and are very energetic to share those ideas. And that's a beautiful thing. That's fine. But they will be far more likely to um, speak up in collective conversations or deliberations than people with less experience, less confidence. That that lack of experience or lack of confidence is in it is correlated, in fact, with um, things like race and gender. Okay, so the reason why it makes sense to have a progressive stack in an activist setting or kind of social movement setting is because the goals and the constraints are very different than in you know in something like the university classroom, and so one. One of those goals or, or, you know, unique characteristics of an activist situation that makes progressive stack actually kind of sensible is the fact that you're trying to do a particular thing together. You have a certain common goal and you have to kind of negotiate uh, how to get there with a large and very diverse group of people. So that's very different than in a university classroom where there's no, you're not trying to do anything per se, other than find the truth and, and share the truth uh, together. Uh, that's its own sort of goal, of course, but you're not trying to uh, like create a community where everyone can kind of live or feel or feel um, equally um, belonging or something like that. That's not that's simply not the goal uh, of the university classroom as it is in a kind of protest camp or something like that. The only goal of the university classroom is to seek the truth. And that should make people quite uncomfortable. It should be difficult um, in, a, in a university classroom. The idea of trying to make it equally reflect the interests or preferences or wishes of all people in a kind of politically negotiated way. You actually don't want that in a university classroom, but you do want it in a in a collective activist setting where, you, where that is actually the goal to try to make that. Okay, so that's one reason because an activist kind of context is uh, often about trying to facilitate a radical direct democracy. And in such cases, you really do need to make everyone feel equally belonging and, and you want to achieve that. And also you need everyone's input. So that's the first reason why progressive stack kind of makes sense in an activist context. And the other, a second reason is that in an activist context, such as a protest camp or a kind of social movement or whatever, there's way more diversity than there is in a university classroom. So in a university classroom, there are already pretty strict selection criteria. 
um, all of the people in a university classroom have met certain criteria uh, for being able to think well, uh, being able to write well. And also they've all, you know, paid to some degree. And so in a, in a, when you're meeting a bunch of people in the streets to try and, you know, protest the government or, or even more radically create some sort of like fundamentally new way of, of being together or something like that, you don't have those selection criteria to ensure that the, the group is relatively well selected in terms of intelligence and things like that. Those things are way more variable. So if the goal is to actually create radically democratic situations or, or communities, then it's all the more important that you do have some technologies for making sure that the super smart, super well-bred, super, you know, you know, let's just say dominant characteristics, the, the, the most powerful kind of uh, personal individual characteristics that are highly unequally distributed in, in society, you do need some way to make sure that they don't uh, sort of control everything. Because, you know, the, the technocratic kind of capitalists among you out there might think, oh, well, that might be a good thing. Just let them let them run the show. Everyone will benefit from that. But actually, that sucks. And it's not the kind of radically empowering, liberating uh, collective type of community that you're really trying to build when you're trying to build radical democracy. It can be super alienating and actually tends to reproduce all of the problems of kind of the status quo society that uh, we often come together to try to figure our way out of. So that's the other reason why progressive stack makes sense. Basically, there's way more radical diversity and you need you do need to come up with some ways to to not let that run roughshod over everything. That obviously doesn't apply as much in the university. So that's another reason why the, the transfer over to university classrooms doesn't make so much sense. And finally, the other thing to keep in mind is that in activist situations uh, or social movement settings, there are often really difficult time constraints. So you often have so many things that you have to discuss as a group, so many sort of agenda items that you have to get through just to sort of reproduce the the, the everyday life of a, of a of a community or a camp or, you know, um, of or an, or, an, or an organization. And you only have so much time, right? Um, but you have often have so many people, like very, sometimes very large numbers of people in Occupy Wall Street, you know, we would have deliberations where it was like a hundred or more people in a, in a circle, in a street, uh, trying to figure out how to make a decision together. That mean what that means is those time constraints mean that um, there is a real risk that some people will not be able to say what they want to say about something that they have, you know, an equal right to contribute to. That just simply doesn't apply in the university classroom where you have a relatively small number of people, even large classrooms, much smaller than a kind of chaotic protest situation. You have a small number of people and you have pretty ample time in regular allotments uh, over the whole course of a semester. I mean, I have never in my entire, you know, relatively short, but not too short experience teaching, I've never in my life encountered a situation where I had a student who wanted to express something in my class, but wasn't able to due to time constraints throughout the whole semester. I mean, that just doesn't happen. In fact, most lecturers have the opposite problem, which is, you know, sometimes it's hard to get them to speak at all. So the, there are there's no real reason in, to be honest there's no real reason to even have a stack in a university setting to have an actual paper list uh to keep track of the the people who want to speak and the order in which they're going to speak or be allowed to speak there's no <laughs> there's no need to do that uh because you don't have that many people and you don't have so many hands shooting up in a chaotic situation so there's hardly any reason to even have a stack but there's even less of a reason to have a progressive stack where you're rearranging the order to reflect kind of progressive goals 
simply because in almost any university classroom, anyone who wants to speak can and will get an opportunity to speak. So all of these differences between the activist situation and the university classroom situation, uh, to me, suggests pretty clearly that importing this, this practice or technology into the university classroom basically makes no sense and is quite indefensible and is actually um, actively uh, harmful to to the real goals of the university classroom, which is basically to to seek the truth as radically as possible with uh, the group of people that you're in the classroom with. Bringing in these sorts of technologies and bringing in these other types of priorities that are fit for a completely different context actually tends to be at odds with what you're trying to do in the university. Okay, welcome back to the Three Left Show. I am your host, Dan Platt, the leftist reading hours. If you're just joining us for this hour, talking about geez, how can I even put it, boil it down, these dichotomies in conversations on the left or between liberals and leftists, so many different kind of differentiations. Is that what the problem is? Maybe. Good question. You know, having separate flags. Uh, and all these other like symbols and symbology, while also like whether the actual strategies has that affect the organizing, has that affect whether or not we get co-opted as leftists, or is it really all just everyone is post-left, no one's really interested in being on some kind of oppositional anti-capitalist team, unless you're an actual like you know Marxist with the with the uh, statics of of, of of Stalin, you know, or something, and, and then you're completely um, relegated to the coop bin that way. Get, you can't disentangle it where you can be intersectional, where you actually do feature class, um, but you need to you need to lay off of the Soviet Union aestheticism or whatever that kind of nostalgia, false nostalgia. So you got to drop that, and then maybe others can take you take it all a bit more seriously. But this is why Trotskyists exist to be anti-Soviet Union and for a left. Uh, the, these are the kind of leaders in the Green Party. That's why I'm a Green, because it kind of does the best of both there. It's both disentangling from the Cold War while also still being like we're working class or we want to represent the working class, not just these differences of caste or professional versus worker or other kinds of things. But here is an article kind of exploring that via a you know interleft um, rivalry of sorts. This is from a website called Challenge. It is the website of the Youth Communist League, an organization in the UK. The article is called, it's from their editorial team, it's called Working Class History, None of the Above. So it's also kind of a bit of a sh throwing shade and stuff like that. So I'm just going to preface this. Uh, this is interactive. Like now, uh, ideally for balance, I would read something from Working Class History. I suggest that it's a separate website uh, done by, well, uh, liberal communists or left libertarians, uh, slash anarchists. And if you read any of their content, this kind of discusses what the problem with it is, but it is still pretty good content. And it's the kind of content that is in fact being employed by uh, many activists on the ground, uh, BLM or otherwise, other type of things. Like for example, at uh, May Day this year, uh, one of the most radical speakers who just won a seat on a uh, Schenectady school board while our kind of Trotskyist friend uh, didn't, though he got a very strong third place. Uh, interestingly enough, that school board is now all women. This kind of comes to something else mentioned by a friend of mine, who's also on Albany school board, that, you know, there's kind of a preference for women in these educational posts. 
that fathers are not like qualified to be responsible in this way that and there's a bit of sexism happening there to at least have a token male or that say the green party we have uh, rules for gender parity that we meet pretty easily and it's simply a matter of half male or half masculine half feminine i'm not sure if mbs count as both or neither something question i've yet to ask or get answered because i don't think we've had that conflict yet or someone who's mb you know non-binary uh wants the leadership position i'm sure it's only a matter of time but anyway uh, this is a critique of a website called Working Class History, and they explain what their problems are, and I think it has something to do with what I've been talking about. Libcom, short for Libertarian Communism, uh, read Anarchism, uh, founded in 2002 by members of the Anarchist Youth Network, has, perhaps surprisingly, given its ideology, had little... <laughs> yeah, and this is where they, they throw shade. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given its ideology, has had very little real-world impact. Of course, can you say that about your, um, you know, communist, uh, your uh, Marxist youth league? You know, what, what impacts do you have? There's a little bit of projection here. All that aside. However, since July 2014, they have been subtly undermining historical record with a populist on this day blog on Twitter and Facebook uh, called not anarchist history as it should be, but working class history. So... I would say my, my gripe is that, yes, they should call it this week in anarchist history, but they call it working class history, which means like they're kind of, where are the, where are the representatives of working class? Any of these other leftists aren't. Because they are a specific tendency. They have a specific point of view. You should be honest in what your point of view is. Gone is the red and black star of anarchism, and in comes a plain design styled to look like a mainstream history teacher's resource page. Their logo is WCH in a yellow square. The deception only begins there. Working class history doesn't give the anarchist view on history, but instead suggests that history itself supports anarchism by mixing straightforward reminders of historic strikes and struggles in with gross and often quiet class distortions of the truth. So far as it seems, as they have passed its followers by uh, 25,000 on Twitter, 290,000 on Facebook, many of whom are decent, honest socialists and Marxists. However, particularly inaccurate post in May 2020 has sounded the alarm, and it is time for a long overdue rejection of them, this libcoms, their working class history front, and everything it represents to our movement, or any other social movement. So what are their, damn, what are their problems? Example one is about um, the Easter Rebellion and James Connolly. So this is their post. On this day, 12th of May, 1916, James Connolly was executed by firing squad uh, in Dublin. He was sentenced to death by the British authorities for his role in leading an armed revolt that had aimed to establish an Irish Republic. Because he had been wounded in the fighting, he faced the firing squad tied to a chair. Politically, Connolly was a complex character, born in Edinburgh in 1868. He participated in worker struggles in Scotland, U.S., and Ireland. He at times wrote and acted as an industrial syndicalist or party socialist. And at different stages of his life, he was active in the IWW and the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, as well as the Scottish Socialist Federation, yada yada. He maintained contradictory positions on nationalism, and in the final years of his life, 
He abandoned trade unionism in favor of a cross-class conspiracy. I don't know what that means. He supported Imperial Germany in World War I and romanticized the feudalist Gaelic society of yore as a country in which the people of the island were owners of the land upon which they lived. I think you're starting to kind of see where they're not representing him fairly by saying he favored Germany in World War I and he had contradictory positions of, on nationalism. So this is where they're being editorial about it. So the first half of it was kind of by the facts, and then the second half is like, but was he an anarchist or not? Well, he was a party socialist, a.k.a. a Marxist-Leninist kind of thing. He was doing the same thing that the Bolsheviks were doing. But these guys hate the Bolsheviks, or they hate those kind of uh, leftists. So it's like they got to erase that. And that's the beef that this group has. So on the anniversary of the murder of the great Scottish and Irish revolutionary icon of James Connolly, working class history once again went out of its way to undermine and defame the very history it wants to document. So the bizarre claim that he supported Germany in World War I is an extreme dis distortion of historical truth based on a deliberate misreading of Connolly's old writing. To boil it down so I don't have to read all of this, he basically says if Germany, if Germany landed an army in Ireland, uh, we would be justified in joining it because they are an oppressed colony of Britain. And he was very much anti-nationalist when it came to the First World War, uh, as any internationalist was. Another example these guys gripe about, but it's, you know, it's emblematic, is post on October of 2017. On this day in 1985, local residents, students, and farmers defeated riot police in the battle over the expansion of the Narahata Airport in Sharazuma, that's in Japan. Here's an archive of, our, of the struggles in Japan. So in reference to the anti-airport struggle that lasted from 69 to 2017, very long time, this uh, working-class history blatantly attempts to push the role of Japanese communists out of frame because they mention local residents, students, and farmers. They don't mention who organized them. Who organized this? Well, there is actually a very robust Japanese Communist Party. It's not hard, but like their politics are like Social Democrat, but they organize. It's not hard to smell a rat here. Not only does the photo show a group of well-organized rioters with red flags, but the photo is taken from a YouTube video produced by a communist group seen throughout the video. A simple Wikipedia search will show that the Shirazuma struggle was composed of organized opposition by farmers, local residents, and leftist groups. That's most of the posts. It's just these two examples as emblematic. But the major tenor is that these posts left, these types of anarchists, seem to go out of their way to make sure that other types of leftists don't get the credit for social or other types of struggle or any other type of work or gains. It seems, it seems deliberate that they do that. And it's kind of unfair because it kind of means it's the reason why, oh, I'm not going to take these commies or these socialists seriously, these class reductionists, because they had no part in anything that ever happened in the past. So how could they, why could they, how could they justify existing now, A, and B, that they will have a part to play in the future? So you can kind of say it's like it's the same type of establishment propaganda 
of erasing leftists. It's a, it's easy to be post left and just see things as through identities or and not class or caste or whatever. I mean, these things are always there, but they're not like I'm going to organize specifically professionals or or I'm going to organize against being professional because it's so such a kooky thing to do. You know, I feel like a kook whenever I talk about like, yeah, I'm not really interested in having a career. I just want to do ten things in a modest way and have a diverse set of skills. Partly like say when, when society collapses, I don't want to just be able to do one thing. Like being a boy scout, you know, you, you can build a fire, you can tie a knot, you can do all these different things. It really, that's what opportunity really should refer to the ability to have many types of skills and not just super specialize. Cause otherwise the, the narrative is like you get a good job by specializing. Uh, or having a specialized business, but I can. Um, but this is also for balance sake. This isn't. Just, this isn't just some tanky thing. Okay, this is this is where I'm kind of like um, going with that. This isn't just like a conservative socialist versus like a progressive socialist. Or I have here a much longer essay that I'll have to skip around, but I do have a good forty minutes to go. So we'll see how much I can cover. And it's from the Black Rose Anarchist Federation. So here's a paper that's written by anarchists, for anarchists, that says particularly the same thing. That there has been this trend of erasing leftist or leftism, right? So these are anarchists that aren't post-left. They're really terrible at organizing as well. They have chapters and such. But, for example, there's no local chapter around here. I think one tried to form... But, it, again, when it comes to, there's a general trend of post-leftism. We don't need to be organized. Organizations are hierarchies, and I, that's, that's only going to lead to us. You know, we may take power, but we'll be just as bad. We won't be liberating ourselves and other such um, arguments, which have merit, and I can use them myself. Um, in fact, when I cover left-wing strategy again, I'll be covering some of them over again as well. Thus, continually confusing myself as to what exactly do I want to do? What should we be doing? So it's called, With Allies Like These, Reflections on Privilege Reductionism. Oh yeah, so I'll return to the topic of progressive staff. Because that's one of those tools of fighting privilege. Um, when you're in a social situation would be a classroom or social movement, people have privilege over others. Privilege of, say, I was read to as a kid, so I'm a little bit better speaking or reading uh, in public. Um, or I was encouraged. I had the privilege of being encouraged to, you know, speak up my mind. Although that wasn't really the case in my personal experience in elementary school. By college, I, as I started being politicized, I learned how to public speak publicly. And and, and even today, you know, I'm a white male, his cis head male, and I have but anyway, there's been there's been a general goal, which could could be said of like this is what kind of what the post left is kind of about, or which is probably not true, but you know, reducing privilege. Like, you know, we, we can make better activism and we, we do organizing that doesn't fall into this the problems of the past by lessening privilege. 
So this was written by uh, two members of uh, the Hamilton branch and one of the Toronto branch of Common Cause. It's a reprint of an essay from 2014. Though it's hard to say the concepts discussed are relatively hegemonic anymore, as the article leads uh, with given the fierce debates the left has had more recently, nonetheless the piece represents a number of important and early criticisms of Brown privilege and identity. It was first published in Mortar, Revolutionary Journal of Common Cause. So let's get into it. There's certain parts. The first part is about kind of history, history lesson here. But here's the, let's start with the intro. Over the course of the last several decades, anti-oppression politics have risen to a position of immense influence in activist discourse in North America. Anti-oppression workshops, reading groups, privilege and oppression, checklists and guidelines, and countless books, online blogs, and articles make regular appearances in anarchist organizing and discussion. Enjoying a relatively hegemonic position in left conversation, anti-oppression politics have come to occupy the position of a sacred object, something that expresses and reinforces particular values, but does not easily lend itself to critical reflection. Indeed, it is common for those who question the operating and implications of anti-oppression politics to be accused of refusing to seriously address oppression in general. A political framework should be constantly reflected on and evaluated. So it's like, I don't want to do all of these workshops on, you know, white privilege. I want to organize tenants. And then you said, and then you're accused of, or rather just thrown out of the group or given the cold shoulder, socially uh, shunted for being a class reductionist. You don't want to fight oppression. You're not, you're not following, you know, you're not, you don't, you don't seem to want to battle white supremacy. I'll return to a quick aside about progressive stack. I like progressive stack. I've used it as a facilitator myself. It's very simple. You basically pick uh, POCs first and white people second. Um, although you can also reframe progressive stack as and this probably uh, helps with the identitarian parts of it, uh, rather problems, is you pick the least likely to have spoken usually, right? So let's say you know, like, say, uh, there's a black woman who usually speaks first. They always have their hand raised. They're always ready to, to, to give their opinion. So, you know, we turn it around. But, see, they're always giving their opinion first. So, some non-progressive stack actually means I'm going to pick the, the, the mousy white guy who doesn't speak up usually and never gets his piece in. I'm going to pick him first this time. You pick who is talking the least in a discussion, not uh, who's the most marginalized always. But usually there is a pattern that the most marginalized or the most oppressed are talking the least. So it usually falls that way. But it doesn't have to if you just start with the principle of I'm going to favor those who are not usually picked first or don't usually speak first. If that dynamic changes, that changes who you choose have speak first in a stack. You know, everyone, you have five people raise their hand, they all want to speak at once, but you choose an order. How you choose a fair, equitable order. But I want to, uh, there, there's this also example I want to bring of like, I, I think I only experienced it a few times, but like say in elementary school, like you're picking teams and being in a multicultural, multi-ethnic, you know, diverse school 
it was kind of the more athletic uh, black kids that were always chosen first for teams, and me being the white kid was actually in the last five to be chosen, right? So that kind of set up a different expectation from childhood on of who gets picked first, who gets favored in certain situations. And that carried with me and made it very natural for me when, it, when I encountered this concept of progressive stack. And, and like I said before, like it just choosing, um, say, when you, the power shouldn't be on just, say, some facilitator and who gets to kind of talk and who doesn't get to talk. A good facilitator, and if they, that's the person speaking, like say it's a mayor, then they should have the skills to say, okay, we have 20 minutes, everyone needs to take this long, you know, our interactions, or my answers have to be this long. I have to limit myself, or I need someone timing me. That's why good facilitation isn't just someone who's taking stack and then choosing who, who's the order, but also someone taking time, limiting time. And that's something that many public meetings, I mean, some will do that, like th uh, three minutes, but then someone will be given um, more than three minutes, and that always burns me up, mostly because of like somebody who is a special guest. They don't, but that's kind of, see that, that, that's where it is kind of progressive in that, okay, this person's a special guest. They don't usually come to common council meetings. They're not usually speaking to the city. Um, we're going to give them five minutes instead of three. But this is usually, it burns me up because these are usually lobbyists who are their special guests because they've been brought in from the outside to argue for a particular against a resolution or whatever, or a new law. And they get more time to speak and spew their bowl. Back to the paper here about anti-oppression politics. So here's some historical context. In the global north, perennial America and Europe, in the 60s and 70s, it marked a high point in social movement struggle. Today, when revolution can seem impossible, it is difficult to imagine a time when militants spoke of the revolution, not cynically, but as something that was happening or would happen in the near future. Subdued using old-fashioned strategies of incarceration, murder, sexual assault, espionage, surveillance, blacklisting, and other forms of direct physical, emotional, and economic violence. Beginning in the 80s, the left found itself entombed. I think that's an appropriate ter term there. Entombed in a sophisticated, I mean trapped, sophisticated system of control and co-option. In describing this, our goal is to illustrate how anti-oppression or identitarian politics is neither radical nor revolutionary. In fact, the prominence of anti-oppression in activist circles is both a symptom of and a contributing factor to the ongoing victory of elites over our movements. Quoting a Dylan Rodriguez in 2007, his book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. And there's a contradiction you might have picked up if you're listening to live stream or on radio uh, won't be in the podcast version but we have gotten some new underwriters for the studio and some of them are large um very sort of capitalist hospitals one is mvp an insurance company the other is albany medical center which currently is still in a three-year fight with the nurses union that formed and voted and succeeded in forming three years ago they still have not negotiated a contract contradiction but we have asked them, their charity arms at the very least, for underwriting support, and they have granted it up to, up to us 
particularly because of our kind of we communicate updates on COVID response and vaccination, and they like that. And we like doing it because it is a public service that was necessary, that cable and other types of news media just doesn't get out there. So that's a case that me doing this radio station, uh, this, this show, isn't revolutionary. Self-report. So here's a quote from The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. Indeed, the U.S. state learned from its encounters with the request of radical and revolutionary liberationist movements in the 60s and 70s that endless spectacular exercises of military and police repression against activists of color on the domestic front could potentially provoke a broader local and global support for their struggles. It was in part because they were so dramatically subjected to violent and racist U.S. state repression that black, Native American, Puerto Rican, and other domestic liberationists were seen by significant sectors of the U.S. and the international public as legitimate freedom fighters whose survival of a racist state pivoted on the mobilization of a global political solidarity. On the other hand, the U.S. state has found in its coalition with the nonprofit industrial complex a far less spectacular, generally demilitarized, and still highly effective apparatus of political discipline and repression to this point has not provoked a significant critical mass of opposition or political outrage. When the libertarian green parties get knocked off or legislated off of our lines or their ability to retain ballot access and the ability to be in the public eye, very little outrage. None at all, in fact, except in our circles. And it's, it's very demoralizing. You know, the attention is on Black Lives Matter. Well, I'm not saying it shouldn't be. But see, there's this disconnect that we can get reform with the Democratic Party if we just pressure and we're in the streets and we're, and we're activated and, mil- and sort of we use militant rhetoric, you know, guillotines and whatever, burning things down. But when it comes to running against them in elections, that's unnecessary. Strategies previously employed by the state capital interests, and by the way, you, you put those together, as I have in the past, um, with many other articles, state and capital can, shouldn't be separated. State capital interests to depose of a fighting trade union movement were mobilized, modified and extended to control. Uh, so first, you know, in the 50s, like with the Red Scare, Carpheism was all about fighting militant trade unions. Then these efforts were modified and extended to control the heterogeneous, meaning it wasn't all just one movement, but the new left movements of the 60s and 70s. Rather than being crushed by outright military force, elements of the resistance movements were subsumed into the inner workings of state and capital, ultimately coming to reinforce the overarching structures of exploitation and oppression. And that's setting up kind of a dichotomy between those that didn't want this uh, to do this, and they became punks, and those that were subsumed, They're usually called yuppies. The process of establishing labor peace involves some key elements which could be seen in the same way that other movements are pacified. The process begins with legitimizing a section of the antagonistic movement. Let's use BLM as an example. Propping them up as leaders of representatives of the whole. This representation requires funding, bureaucracy to maintain itself. In the case of labor peace, Funding was guaranteed by the RAND formula, a policy which requires employers whose workers are unionized to collect dues and hand them over to the union. 
which serves to put the union in a dependent position on the legislative framework, thus the state. The maintenance of power and outside legitimacy. And by the way, so, so by the way, so like you pay union dues through your paycheck. That means you're dependent on state law and the corporation to fund the union. If the union isn't independently funded, it can't act independently. So no independent strikes, no independent organizing, no union power. The one-two punch, destroy and replace. While the co-option of revolutionary movements was no new insight on the part of the ruling class, the scale of this project was novel. Understanding that every new generation would bring with it a new awareness that revolutionary change was desirable. I'm one of those. The ruling class saw it then to create infrastructure not just to contain existing movements, but to re redirect the energies of future ones. Destroy existing movements by way of violence, infiltration, etc., and then replace all aspect of that movement with institutions that are in line with the interests of the ruling class. For our purpose, it is on this latter point that we focus. And this is kind of a pattern that maybe you've seen crop up in many of my episodes. If you're a regular listener, I hope you are. Because then you see a kind of bigger picture of how, uh, say, a union drive fails, and then you go to start a co-op instead. Maybe this fits in that pattern, that a co-op is more amenable to ruling class interests than a militant union that either tries again or succeeds elsewhere, or you try a different kind of union. A union not based on the workplace, but something else on the sector, or no, no differentiation at all. In the 80s, substantial inroads were made for new areas where people's organizations previously enjoyed a monopoly, the creation of revolutionary theory, uh, the internal movement and popular education by which that theory was shared and elaborated, changed. In these four areas, liberalism postured, liberalism postures as the emancipatory politics as thoroughly washed the revolutionary potential away. It's kind of a mess of a sentence there. So of all of that co-option, one form of that co-option, maybe, you know, at the time, especially even now, it's not seen as co-option, but to go into academia. Here's where the right wing kind of like Prager you, they, they, they say right, over and over, uh, the new left, you know, they, they either failed or they, they needed a new strategy. So they say, we're going to go into universities and we're going to train students to be our new cadre or movement. It's not really what they're thinking. It's they're wrong. Prager you wrong. Oh, was surprised. But they are uh, right that there was. I mean, they're they're observing this real thing that there was a trend of new leftists that went in academia. They did so mostly to figure out what went wrong. Why was the new left so heterodox? Why was it so ununited when really it needed to be? Why was there so much revolutionary potential? Talking of the revolution. But then it was, it didn't happen. It was beaten. While analysis and theory were historically produced by radicals in the context of struggle, this task has largely been shifted to the realm of academia. Over the course of the last several decades, entire bodies of literature and corresponding vocab have been developed, turning radical theory and analysis into a specialized undertaking. 
Coming out of the 70s, many liberation movements sought to create homes for themselves within the university through the creation of progressive studies departments. Something actually occurring even today. At the time, some activists thought that obtaining space within universities was an important goal because of its potential to organize collectively and because of the large amount of resources that universities have. However, in hindsight, okay, uh, no villains here, the channeling of resistance into universities facilitated the destruction of grassroots movements and created a space in which people could build careers off the backs of past struggles, despite ostensibly radical beginnings. Progressive studies function to hinder the interests of revolutionary movements. How? So first, the gravitation of would-be revolutionaries to the university for an education, where radical theory is subject to liberal pressures, more than, uh, or establishment pressures, more than an accountability to humanity, to harness radical traditions and erase collective memory of a struggle. There exists a fundamental misunderstanding, and to this to be generous uh, regarding motivation, of a radical education, that the classroom can serve a foundation for transformative politics, rather than an adjunct to learning and development of real-world struggle. This is kind of how my education functioned, actually. I didn't go to school to learn how to be a radical activist. I took theory and history to inform, well, to do what, do what this says, to, to be a foundation for whatever struggle I take part in, not as a form of struggle in itself. So certain research conducted by students on marginalized constituencies, which was the closest thing to grassroots work that many would see or may have seen, is often based on such exploitative assumptions and power relationships that value may only occasionally be derived from it. The demobilizing effects of this alienation of theory from action can't be overstated. And this is a general modernist trend of separating theory and action, like the specialization of architecture. And this is something from my architectural background. Like before pre-industrial era, you know, architects were the master builder. There were home, um, there was a, a holistic design program of sorts. They designed holistically, which the, the landscaping, the building, the engineering was all done by the same person or group of people. And thus was a more complete whole, more humanist. In the modern era, all of these areas were separated. So the architect just focuses on the building form and thus makes sculpture. The engineer just does roads and civil uh, engineering. So they just make the bridges and structures. And, and so you'll get a bunch of types of architectures that are just trusses. And they're still in Latin, they're lacking cold and they're, you know, you get glass boxes. The landscaper gets separated out. So they're just doing parks or the landscaping. It's all separate. You know, you got the building and then the landscaping is put around after the fact. They're not done together and, and they're all weaker for it. You know, you, you may, you have a, a dumb building and then you put some shrubs around it, uh, nature band-aids. Something similar happened when it came to politics or in every, every sector, really. So then he talks about uh, movement education, how, it, how it, you know, popular education has been most, almost entirely abandoned by the left. 
kind of hoping podcasting and I'm hoping I'm my practice is that podcasting and, and making newsletters and, and blogs and regular reporting is a form of getting back to doing popular education. Uh, otherwise, it's been abandoned by the left, from radical to reformist. Here, we focus on internal movement education and how it's done. So movement education, you know, how do you educate the next activist? How do you educate the people in your organization to take up leader, leadership positions later? It takes the form of mentoring, book fairs, workshops, literature, online forums, and formal education programs. This stands in contrast to the pedagogy employed by successful movements of the past, where mostly, to boil it down, people got on the job training. James Garrett worked extensively on the creation of Black Studies at San Fran State U, a program which was exemplary in the creation of progressive studies departments in North America. Being interviewed by an Abram Rogers in 09, titled Remembering the Black Campus Movement and Oral History Interview, Garrett recounts his own political education beginning when he, quote, got involved in the sit-in movements. We demonstrated and I was arrested seven times that summer and I was hooked. My life changed. By the time I got to San Fran State, I was ready. I was trained and prepared. I came there as a veteran of the movement. Here, we contrast the militant who arrives at university trained, not in manners, but in the manipulation of power for radical ends, and then proceeds to organize instead of arriving hoping to be educated. I, saw, I, I suppose somewhat I was trained in that I grew up around my my father's activist friends and the project of a conservation program. And so I was kind of trained, at least by osmosis, of being around sort of activists doing very non-militant pacifist kind of uh, things, but they include lawsuits, um, uh, suing the municipalities, um, taking an oppositional posture and, and getting things done using power being a small group, not being particularly powerful, but, but, but having a popular cause. Describing the goals of the creation of black studies as the redirection of university resources to benefit the illuminate uh, problems of the black community, he is critical of modern careerists who consolidated the entire black con consciousness, you know, black academics, I guess. Even in forms of movement education, which were later depicted as individualized consciousness raising, people actually emphasize the collective creation and distribution of knowledge by those affected. Consciousness raising, consciousness raising was borrowed by the women's movement and Chinese revolutionaries. Okay, I gotta, so there's so much here. It's a very long paper. But let's see if I can boil it down. So more of the history. So like there's a lack of um, leftists provide services, but in a non-political manner. Um, there's co-option and thus the creation of social codes. Um, and that's kind of what he's talking about, that social codes, cancel culture, whatever you call it, replaced this movement education. For most people, especially online, there is no movement education. And the best you get is maybe an organized book club, reading group, workshops. So here, social interactions. In recent years, we have seen an emphasis placed on the role of anti-oppressive practice in regulating social interactions on the left. As manners go, anti-oppression is not a bad try at a moral code that seeks to not brutalize and disempower each other. Perhaps this is the best that can be said about it. 
However, it does not in the end in itself constitute anything other than a bare minimum standard behavior. It's not doing politics. Right? It's good, but it's not politics. Decades ago, but see, it's made into a, a political battle, and that's where things go awry. Decades ago, in yet another work that has been left unread by those who invoke it, the value of such interventions were questioned by a Carol Hatchett in 1970, uh, the book The Personal is Political. Discussing conscience raising, she states, personal problems are political problems. There is no personal solution at this time. There are only collective action solutions, collective solutions. Soon after, she dismisses lifestyleism as without political merit. Quoting her, the groups that I have been in have also not gotten into alternative lifestyles or what it means to be a liberated woman. We came early to the conclusion that all alternatives are bad under present conditions. There is no more liberated way. There are only bad alternatives. The writers of this paper then talk about the anti-globalization movement, that these academics, these post-leftists, were kind of waiting for the next big movement, this charge. And it occurred in the late 90s with anti-globalism. When anti-globalization movement saw a groundswell of activism, action, organizing, the capabilities of the nonprofit complex and progressive studies to contain potential revolutionary forces was put to the test. So even if they didn't like know it, they were doing the establishment's work. So hungry to learn more about the world and how to change it, fresh activists turned to the remnants of the last generation of struggle, you know, veterans of the 60s. But only instead of finding the history of their neighborhoods, grandparents, and political organizations, they found them in books written by university-educated people. So instead of being educated in how to do organizing, they were educated in how to talk about oppression. Infused with this purportedly radical press with the ideology of anti-oppression, explicitly claiming heritage from the 60s and 70s liberation movements on one hand, anti-oppression theory on the other hand discourages direct connection with movements, referencing and critiquing works of past generations while not making those works directly available. So it was always analysis of what went wrong instead of what was actually done well or how is it happening in the first place. For example, black power is then is dismissed as anti-feminist and homophobic. Labor struggles are racist, colonial, patriarchal. Radical feminism is anti-trans, anti-sex, and sometimes homophobic. Other feminists are pro-capitalist or white-centered. Gable liberation was dominated by white affluent men. Components of all movements sought to integrate themselves in power structures and capital. Order for an idea to be worth considering, the generator of the idea must be politically pure. Which is, is that possible? And since the purity has to do with strict adherence to a code of speech, conduct, which was developed and is learned in primarily universities, it's only accessible to a portion of workers. It's not widely accessible. So in practice, this results in, you know, a situation of the critique. It's useful to consider some of the common practices associated with anti-oppression politics. Although a homogeneous grouping of practices doesn't exist, there are dominant trends to observe. 
Here are some descriptions. Workshops, workshops, and more workshops. Anti-oppression workshops are mandatory in many non-governmental organizations and activist groups. Workshops attempt to provide an overview of the ways in which power operates. Group exercises such as Step Forward and Step Back, Mainstream Margin, are used to draw on personal experiences to highlight the different ways in which oppression and privilege affect participants. The Pursuit of Safer Spaces, Call-Out Culture, The Good Ally, Practice is actually the short um, section. I'm not, I don't have to go into it because there's so many others who do. But here are the implications. It's still a championing of individual over collective action. While anti-oppression theory acknowledges that power relations operate at both the micro and macro level, it places more of a focus on individual interactions. Emphasis is placed on individual conduct and personal involvement, with little attention given to structural oppression, which is odd because it seems like personal side, that's what we're moving towards, but or that's what we're doing, but then the practice is still just online or Twitter arguments and mob culture, you know, mobs and pseudo-activism, you know, collectivism. This was talked about back in 2011 and 2012 by like Dan Carlin and stuff, collectivism, hack, uh, slacktivism. It's only gotten, it's only grown in numbers because of the, you know, new people interested. But movement, people aren't being educated to be in movements. They're being educated or their practice, they're, they're, what's there is to just be online, which is in a devouring force. There's a relentless articulation of differences. I wish I had more time, but I'm reaching the end of the show. You get subcultures of get, uh, subcultural ghettos and, and lifestyleism. I've discussed the problems with those things in previous episodes. There is the privileges when when you when you feature these things. There's a kind of implicit pacifism. There's a pacifying feature of anti-oppression politics. Due to increased risks associated with militant action, it is argued that confrontational politics are largely the domain of those who occupy a social location of privilege, mainly cis men. Which is the but that's the opposite of what occurs in the world. The people who put their bodies on the line are the are not me. It's weird. For example, the Autonomous Workers Group notes that black bloc actions in the city of Portland are often critiqued on the basis of furthering the mentality of masculine white privilege. In a similar vein, another article critiques property destruction and illegal strike action, stating these people can get arrested, uh, and it's also traumatic. Others cannot. These are practical considerations. It's more like my participation should be to do the militant things. So others don't. But don't say that's like I'm only doing this because I'm white and it's not because I'm down for the cause. It's part of the cause. But there's a differentiation. It's like, no, they're not with us. So, yeah, and then it becomes like, you know, you got to listen to black people. Black people only riot when black people say. I have problems with that. Do I have a clear answer? Only that it's individualizing. It's not collective to say you, this group leads, this group, other, other group follows. 
I feel like there are equitable and democratic ways of doing it. But see, it's not one team. It's There's all of this differentiation. Thus, there cannot be collective action or solidarity. So it kind of comes down to like, you know, what what needs to happen? What, what kind of thinking and practices do we need to do to encourage the collective action rather than the I'm going to racialize this for my group and you, you know, and, and we'll thinking that we'll get to universal policy. And once again, run up against the hour. So thank you for listening to the Three Love Show. My name is Dan Platt. Get us on Twitter, Facebook, other social media, Mastodon as well. I haven't posted there in a while, though. ThreeLefts.net is the website as we find all of the content. We're also on every kind of podcasting app.